Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Natural Curiosity Project, the place for stories that matter. As a musician, but listening to Ibrahim to a concert hall, which is so focused, you know, in the moment on everything that's going on, is the listening that I want to bring and I want others to bring to their everyday environments. The voice you just heard is Thomas Meinzen, my guest on today's program. I am always on the lookout for interesting topics that I can dig into, and it shouldn't surprise you to know that very close to the top of my list of desired topics is the place where sound studies and the natural world sort of collide. Well, not long ago, I was following one of these digital rabbit trails online, just kind of seeing where it would take me, and I ran across a paper called Listening to Multitudes, Confronting the Human-Nature Divide Through Sound. It was a thesis written by my guest, Thomas, and required for graduation with honors from the Environmental Humanities Program at Whitman College in Washington. So, a couple of observations before I introduce Thomas. First, I am not in the habit of reading theses because they have an annoying tendency to make my eyeballs bleed. But the title of Thomas's paper grabbed me, Listening to Multitudes. Second, Environmental Humanities. I love the name, the field that Thomas studied, yet I have no idea what it is, so I looked it up. Turns out that it's a pretty big field and it's offered by quite a few schools. Here's a pretty good description that I found of it. Environmental Humanities lives at the place where environmental philosophy, environmental history, eco-criticism, cultural geography, cultural anthropology, and political ecology meet and it explores the potential to open interdisciplinary studies both within the humanities and in collaboration with the social and natural sciences as well as to shape public debate and policies on environmental issues. Now, I love this because it's very much in alignment with E.O. Wilson's position on consilience, the idea that magic happens and sparks fly when the sciences and the humanities join forces to solve our biggest challenges. Anyway, I read Thomas's thesis, which is available online. I'll put a link in the program resources, and it's pretty powerful. Uh, made all the more so because he also wrote a chamber orchestra piece to accompany the written document. I found it on YouTube, and again, I'll share a link with you. So I reached out to Thomas, and he agreed to join me for the program. I started by asking him about the genesis of his thesis idea. So I have been interested in sound for a long time and also in environmental studies and conservation and as a senior at Whitman College I was studying environmental humanities which gave me the fortunate choice to sort of go a lot of different directions with a thesis and I also was studying music and biology and the previous year I had worked in Costa Rica doing research into bird bioacoustics and so I had um, developed all of these recordings, both of bird sounds and of human sounds in Costa Rica, um, and done some of that work in the U.S. as well. And I was interested in thinking about incorporating sound into a, a thesis, as well as thinking about this disconnection between humans and nature, which was kind of a, a through line in a lot of the work I'd done in environmental humanities and kind of the reason why I got into that program. My initial sort of interest was trying to figure out how to motivate people to to care about nature and the environment, because so so many people, um, we all depend on the environment, and a lot of people appreciate it, but they don't see it as something that 
um, they sort of have an ethical responsibility or that they're a part of. So, you know, our, our ethics extend to those who we see as re relating to, who we re relate to. And so for most of us, that's other people, but uh, for most people, it's not other species. And so what I was interested in is, you know, thinking about how sound might actually provide us a vehicle for understanding the rest of the world as something that we are part of and related to. And as I read more and did more research about that, I found that there's a lot of sort of unique elements to the way that sound works that actually makes it a, a great way of thinking about integration between humans and nature, as well as digging down in history and thinking about oral cultures, like many indigenous cultures today, have often a different relationship and more integral relationship with um, the non-human world. And so it was really interesting to think, then thinking about the history of um, Western society um, and the division between humans and nature being actually connected with the transition from an oral culture to a, a literate culture through the development of the Greek alphabet and writing. And so all that kind of came together in this thesis project, which um, is about how sound can help us reintegrate and see kind of confront this disconnect between humans and nature, thus hopefully impacting our our ethics regarding nature. And also as part of it, I was able to write actually a composition that sort of musically demonstrated the ideas that I wrote in my thesis. And so that was kind of going from the genesis all the way kind of to what was incorporated into it. Early in the thesis, Thomas quotes David Abram, the author of, among other things, The Spell of the Sensuous, a pretty wonderful book. Could literacy, Abrams asks, have played a part in promoting our separation from nature? What I was trying to get at is thinking about the ways that today we often see our world as separate from the natural world. And my proposal in this thesis is that sound can actually counter this and bring us into relationship with all the other beings that we share the planet with. And I think that there's so much to discover um, in that relationship and so much that is remarkable in the way that the rest of the world perceives it, all of the different worlds that they share. And I think that what, I, what I'm getting at here is that there are lots of different ways in which um, a visual world and a writing-centric world can promote this idea of separation and doesn't need to, but I think there is some tie here with being able to direct our vision um, and see kind of these sharply defined borders in the world compared with sound in which everything is sort of automatically integrated. So in vision, we see space as being the kind of divider, the, the meaning-making um, dimension, and that we can look around and we can differentiate using space between different objects, between the objects that are important to us as humans and those that we can easily ignore in nature. And we can make those distinctions and pretty easily see a lot of our environments that we live in, especially in urban spaces, as human environments separate from natural areas. Whereas with sound, there's automatic integration because the meaning making happens through time, not through space. So sounds all join together in the same space they all hit our ears together and intermix. And what really makes them meaningful is the dimension of time, is the, the frequency, which is based on time, and then also the order in which things come in. If you think about like my sentence, it's, 
it only makes sense because I'm speaking these words in this order. The difference there, I think, with time is that um, we don't have as much control over time. And so we can't we can't choose to just block out sound. There's no way to just only care about human sound. We're also automatically being infiltrated with, with bird sound, with squirrels, with frogs, that we with the sound of wind, all of these sounds that remind us that nature is among us, even in the most urban spaces. And I think in that reminder, there's there's a hope that we can consider nature as part of our community and us as part of nature's community. And in that, extend our ethical responsibility farther than just others of our species into the whole natural world. As I listened to Thomas explain the meaning behind the quote from David Abram, a memory popped into my head that I shared with him. Not long ago, my wife and I watched a Disney movie with our two oldest granddaughters. Like all Disney movies, there's good and evil expressed in the characters, and every time something bad, by Disney standards, was about to happen, both girls raised their hands to their heads and covered their ears, not their eyes. Seeing something bad was apparently far less scary than hearing something bad. I asked Thomas, in his capacity as a composer and musician, about the power of sound. That's a really interesting observation, and I think is telling of another, I think, impact of sound in that sound really can be tied with our emotions. And specifically with music, you, as you know, we can convey things that we can't convey through images or through words, can really directly convey emotions that then we can tie to our own sort of stories and our own experiences. You know, you see in movies all the time, you can tell sort of if something's going to be scary by the music. And I think in cinema, they really capitalized on the impact of sound of hearing and bringing information about, okay, how should we feel about this space we're in? And there's lots of interesting studies about the impact of, of sound on humans and on lots of other species. For example, the stress that um, is increased in lots of different species like birds if there's like a, a lot of sound pollution, low frequency hums from, from gas fields, for example. And I think part of that is because sound is, is constantly conveying information to us, important information about where we are and in uh, evolutionary context, you know, what kind of danger we might be in. And so I think um, sound can provide important information, not only to orient us, but also to affect our emotions, which is part of the reason why in my thesis, I wanted to actually write a piece and try and try to present this sort of ecological and emotional connection that we can have through sound. I'll play an excerpt from Thomas's chamber orchestra piece, Songs from the World Around Us, a bit later in the program when he describes it in detail. But first, I was curious about a statement he made in the paper. He said, given the ways that the get-out-into-nature trope serves to reinforce human nature separation instead of remedying it, I would like to propose a reversal of position. Instead of focusing on getting people into nature, I think we ought to focus more on getting nature into people, integrating non-human lives and processes into our thoughts and experiences. Rather than conceiving of nature as a pristine whole which we enter into as visitors, let us think of it as an interacting network to which we belong. 
that is connected with an idea that a lot of writers, especially I think in recent times, have thought about because human influence has expanded so much in, in recent decades. It's very hard to find places that are uh, quote unquote pristine. And in truth, um, even you know, before European settlers came to this continent, it was absolutely modified by indigenous people who are living here, millions of people modifying their environments. And so this sort of um, idea of nature as being this sort of pristine wilderness that's separate from humans, and we just need to get humans out into it, it's a fallacy. You know, there there never was a nature that, that existed um, separate from humans as long as humans have been around. We've been modifying our environment. That's what we do as a species. I would say, you know, with that, there's still really um, a lot of value in having spaces that have less human impact and trying to minimize that because our the scale of our impacts have increased so dramatically and the amount that we can impact nature with our current levels of technology and our population um, just completely outweighs what it was before. But with that, I think it's important to think about the nature that still exists everywhere among us. Um, there's lots of ways to think about that. Um, I read a book recently called Never Home Alone by Rob Dunn that's all about the tiny life that's living in our homes. Um, and, you know, there's fascinating things like Thermos aquaticus, this bacteria that was first found in geysers and hot springs in Yellowstone, turns out is also in our water heaters. Um, and so there's all these kind of wonderful ways in which non-human life exists among us. And of course, microbes are a fascinating, you know, super diverse array of life, but it also extends into things like rodents and birds and insects that are they're everywhere among us in our cities, uh, suburban areas and our towns, not just out there in the forest or out there in the wilderness or out there in the national park. And I think we should really value spaces that have less hu human impact, but we shouldn't relegate nature to only over there. Because if nature is only the national park, it's pretty easy to ignore it on a day-to-day -day basis and pretty easy to think of it as something that we don't impact every day. But really, we do have an impact on the nature that's among us and the nature that's over there in our actions every day. Um, climate change has certainly been a lesson in how you know our everyday actions are impacting the entire globe. If we think about nature as among us, it can also provide a way for us to see nature as something that we can all relate to. It doesn't have to be only sort of the purview of the ecologists or the environmentalists or the biologists just like how people who have pets feel like they have really an intimate relationship with that animal. They care about that animal. They will do a lot for that animal. If we think about nature as something that we each relate to, that is part of our community, then we're more likely to care about it. And I think it's just a richer life as well. I asked Thomas to comment on something that I've been wrestling with a lot lately and that I had recently discussed with another wildlife sound recordist. Many of us go to great lengths to trek deep into the wilderness with our recording gear to capture the sounds of nature at its most pristine, the sounds of the natural world without human noise intruding, sounds which we then share with others. But by doing so, do we inadvertently send a message to the world at large that there must be plenty of human noise-free places on the planet 
and that things clearly aren't as bad as we claim them to be, since the average person has no idea how much effort was required to get those clean recordings. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I think you know, sound sound pollution is not something that gets talked about a lot, but really does have a profound impact on a lot of different species. And you know, we notice it, and that it could be very refreshing to be out in places that are quieter. But for most species that that rely, you know. For example, birds that rely on sound to remain safe, to give them clues about, you know, what might be hunting them and what threats are out there. Having sound pollution from from humans can be really dangerous, really stressful and impact them in you know, a much more severe way than it might impact us. So, yeah, I think it's it's totally important that we recognize that our sound is everywhere. And often, you know, the sounds that we bring are are these, you know, long, low-frequency hums that can really impact ecosystems in negative ways. That's, you know, another component of sound and conservation intersection that um, is interesting to think about. One of the points that Thomas makes clearly in his thesis is that if we make an effort to see ourselves as an integral part of the natural world, instead of maintaining this mentality that says that there's nature and then there's us, then our perception of our own responsibility as part of that natural world might change. I asked him about that. This is something that I've been emphasizing my answers to other questions as well, but I really think that if we see ourselves as in relationship with nature, then we also should see ourselves as responsible as part of a community with nature. If you take out the nature or the other species element, that can be pretty intuitive. Um, We We all care about our communities, whether that be restricted to just our families or a larger community, depending upon the situations we're in. But we take care of them. We steward them. We think about their quality of life. We think about their survival. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, And I think if we extend those thoughts to nature, it it really will change the way that we live and the way we make our day-to-day decisions. for me, um, it certainly influenced what I choose to do to make a living to, as my career. It influences decisions about my transportation, how I get around, what kind of foods I eat, um, all sorts of small decisions. And while I think the big problems we have today need to be addressed on a structural level, not necessarily on an individual level, I think that thinking of ourselves as individuals, as re- related to nature, if we all do that, Um, I think that we'll be a lot more motivated to address structural change, as well as think about how our own decisions affect the lives of other species. Finally, I asked Thomas to tell me about his composition, Songs from the World Around Us. So the composition I wrote is for seven instruments, and it's a chamber music composition that incorporates sounds from all around us. So um, the sounds of human footsteps the sounds of a variety of birds that I recorded, the sounds of uh, lots of different other animals that form sort of the beats and the melodies of music combined with live instruments, performing and incorporating the all these different sounds into a musical story, essentially. And the reason why I wrote this was uh, to kind of encourage what you mentioned earlier, this attentive, active listening to the world around us to not only the natural world, but also to our own participation within that world, to see, again, that sort of integration between us and nature. 
as a musician, but listening to Ibrahim to a concert hall, which is so focused, you know, in the moment on everything that's going on is the listening that I want to bring and I want others to bring to their everyday environments. So I wrote the piece to try and encourage um, hearing our environment in a musical way and paying attention to it, not only for its information, but also for its storytelling and its emotive power. In the piece, a lot of different recordings I've made, I've then transcribed those recordings to actual to music and then written them for different instruments. And so you'll actually hear the recordings themselves and then often echoed by melodies in the instruments. And they all kind of flow together um, in the piece. And it was really a challenging thing, but fun thing to put together. And I think a cool way to kind of share this big thesis with a lot of people in a way that they actually could enjoy and would have the time to experience. Here's an excerpt from Songs from the World Around Us by Thomas Meinsen. Songs from the World Around Us by my guest, composer, musician, and sound recordist, Thomas Meinsen. I'll post information about his work, including his various albums, which are wonderful, by the way, in the program resources. As always, thank you for joining me, and thank you, Thomas, for the gift of your time. I end this episode with an excerpt from one of my favorite pieces by Thomas, Broughton Beach, from his album, The Blue Records. Enjoy. Enjoy. 